There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is all about helping people create more meaningful and purposeful lives and equipping leaders inside organizations to cultivate meaning and purpose that elicits passion, inspired contribution, innovation, and persevering performance. I talk with my guests to draw on their expertise and share my own experience consulting, speaking, developing workforces across the globe. Each week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something you can immediately put to use in your life or your work. And if I can do anything to help you along your journey, go to my website at elisecortez.com and use the contact me feature to message me. And let's open a conversation to see what's going on for you and how I might be able to help. In your rate, I'm glad we're connected and thanks for listening. Now on to this week's program. With us today is Dr. Alex Patakos, affectionately nicknamed Dr. Meaning, who is a modern-day Greek philosopher and founder of the Global Meaning Institute, a think tank dedicated to advancing the human quest for meaning in life, work, and society. He is co-author with Elaine Dundon of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, Victor Frankl's Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work. Patakos and Dundon are also the co-authors of The Opa Way, Finding Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life and Work, that is uniquely inspired by Greek philosophy, mythology, and culture. They are also the co-creators of the discipline called Meaningology, the study and practice of meaning in life, work, and society. Today we'll be talking about the crisis of meaning and why meaning is so important to nurture in our lives, the meaningology paradigm and model, and how it can be utilized by leaders and organizations to create cultures of meaning and help employees find more meaning in their work. Dr. Patakos joins us today from Niagara-on-the-Lake, Canada, a beautiful historic place, he tells me. Dr. Patakos, welcome to Working on Purpose. Uh, it's great to be with you, Elise. Uh, I've been lo- looking forward to this this con- this wonderful, meaningful, working on purpose conversation. <laughs> me too, me too. And I did devour both of your books. I thank you so much for for penning them. Um, and I also want to acknowledge it's wonderful that you have a a beautiful, loving, and working relationship with your wife, Elaine Dundon. I think that is spectacular. I hope to find that one day in my own life. So I revere that. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I feel very blessed and honored as well. And I think it's also a unique combination because, as you can tell from reading the books, we kind of balance our different energies in terms of how we convey the message. I think that's a really important and unique uh, attribute that we bring. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So, it's good. meaningful and beautiful. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Now, speaking of that, um, one of the things that I find fascinating about getting to do the show is is just really surfacing really important issues that really impact people across their lives and, and certainly their work. And you are leading the meaning movement. So the first thing we probably need to do is define for our listeners what you mean by meaning. So what do you mean by it and why is it so important in our lives? Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a question that, uh, as you can imagine, both Elaine and I get asked all the time. Uh, I think most of the definitions of meaning when people actually go there, because oftentimes what they'll just do is do a quick survey of saying, do you find meaning in your work? Do you have purpose in your life or something like that without really uh, uh, demystifying what that concept is? Most of the people that seem to be defining meaning look at it primarily as something that is significant or something that matters to us. And I think that that's fine up to a certain extent, but I think what Elaine and I have done in our work, and this is primarily because 
our work is really grounded in existential philosophy probably more than anything else is the fact that we ask deeper questions and the question that really brought us to our definition of meaning is the fact that we are looking at things that effectively resonate with us which allow us to find our true nature what we call our core essence and we typically know what is meaningful to us when it's almost like the song Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, those, those listeners who would uh, remember that group. Um, you know, sometimes we have good vibrations when we meet someone, when we experience something. Other times the vibrations kind of separate us or we realize that's not really what I'm interested in. And so, so the idea of meaning and, and really getting down almost to a quantum and metaphysical level is really what, what connects with us on a, on a deeper, uh, deeper plane. And, and, and I guess in, in that sense, it's, uh, it's something that allows us to determine what is meaningful by, in many ways, asking the opposite question, what is meaningless? And if you ask people what is meaningless in their work, in their life, it's very easy for them to come up with a laundry list. It's probably harder in some cases to initially start out about what's meaningful, but if you look at the meaninglessness question, you can start to convert that into something and say, okay, what do I have to do to make my job, my work, my relationship, where I live, more meaning, less meaningless, and ultimately more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I don't know that I've actually heard that 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 method of of distinguishing meaning, but I like it. And then for for our listeners to understand, those people who are maybe scratching their head, like, why are we having a show about meaning? Why is meaning so important in our lives? Well, you know, we've we've done a lot of research. Now, this is something that goes back a lot of years. I mean. Uh, both both uh, Elaine and I have not only done research, we've worked in, in, in the business world, we've worked in governments, we've worked in a lot of different organizations, we've worked for organizations, we've worked with people literally in all stages and walks of life uh, across culturally. And I think one of the things that's really important to us is that um, some of the work that we did, uh, say, go back 10 years, maybe even just 10 years ago, we were focused on how to help organizations become more innovative. And actually, Lane wrote another book called The Seeds of Innovation, which is really a practical guide to uh, how to how to create a meaningful culture, uh, innovative culture, how to create opportunities for people to actually be more creative and be able to, to take action and so forth so that they can bring more innovation to their business, to their organization. And over the years of, of working in the innovation arena, and we actually taught the first integrated course on innovation management uh, here in in Canada at the University of Toronto, uh, is the fact that we found that innovation would kick off with a bang, and then after a short amount of time, it would start to sizzle in and fizzle, and then eventually it would just stop. And so we've really tried to look at, well, what is it? How do you you sustain these great innovation initiatives over time? And most of the work that we did, we realized, well, you know, those things are not extrinsically motivated necessarily. There are many things that happen that are more intrinsic. And there are, these are the kinds of things, again, that, that relate to the meaning question, the existential question. So if your budget gets cut or somebody, uh, say, doesn't like an idea that you present to your, to your supervisor, your boss – a lot of times people just retreat and then they want to, they don't want to come back with another idea or the culture itself is so toxic that people say, well, why should I even try to innovate in this company when it really doesn't matter to me? And so those kinds of questions, which became really existential questions to us, became our driver for looking at what are those, those primary intrinsic motivators that keep people going when times are tough, not just when times are good, 
but when times are tough. And the more we got into that, the more it brought us to <clears throat> the meaning questions. Obviously, as I'll, we'll get into this, uh, you know, Victor Frankl, the psychiatrist, was a mentor, and he actually encouraged us to write our one book, Prisoners of Our Thoughts. And so the meaning, the search for meaning in everyday life and work became kind of almost a, uh, uh, it, it was almost like branded in our soul, if you will. We said, look, we have to share how can people find deeper meaning in their life, which will help them in their workplace environment? How do we help people find meaning in their work, which will help them keep going even when times get tough? And as we all know, times do eventually get tough. They do indeed. And in fact, that does bring me to the next question here, Alex. And I love the way that you you presenced all that for us because it's so important people understand why this meaning stuff is so critical. It gets to the motivation piece. So I'm going to guess that a lot of people don't really realize that there is a meaning movement afoot. So let's talk about the crisis of meaning we're both dedicated to eradicating. Help us understand how vast this problem is and how it's manifesting in our lives. Yeah. Well, you know, the meaning movement is not something that probably we could say we start, obviously started. I mean, meaning right, is, right. is, as we look at even going back to the pre-Socratic philosophers in ancient Greece, uh, they were looking at, okay, how do we live the good life? And the good life to us has become the meaningful life. It's not just about materialism. It's not just about uh, having more influence and power over other people. It's not just about money. And so some of these questions that, again, these are existential meaning questions, go back, you know, millennium. But let's just go to the more more current period, say go back to the, to the 20th century, so we're at least closer to where we are now. Uh, Viktor Frankl, who is uh, really a pioneer, meaning in psychotherapy and psychiatry, um, he back, uh, you know, around the time of uh, World War II, identified what's referred, what he referred to as the mass neurotic triad. And basically that triad consists of three characteristics, which he referred to as societal symptoms of problems that we need to, needed to address. And again, realize that this is going back to World War II around that period. Uh, one of them is addiction. The second one is aggression, and the third one is depression. And those three uh, societal symptoms that that were witnessed during that time period that Dr. Frankel was uh, writing about them and, and speaking about them, um, uh, think about it today. Are they less or are they more? And as we all know, and anybody who's listening to this uh, conversation that we're having, that addiction has not gone away. If anything, where there are more types of addiction, it's much more prevalent today than it was in, 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 in Dr. Frankel's time. And what he probably couldn't even imagine some of the addictions that we have today, such as the internet addiction and, and other types of things. Aggression. I mean, aggression is happening all over from not just in areas in families and domestic violence. We're talking about aggression. Uh, you know, when we talk about, say, the uh, Antifa uh, polarization, political movements of today. Uh, we've got violence on a on a geopolitical scale. Uh, we've got all kinds of things that are happening on the aggression side. That again, we're not just talking about going postal. We're not just talking about gun violence. We're not just talking about problems and bullying. All those things are part of this big thing. Many of these things didn't exist at a time when uh, at least they weren't evident when Dr. Frankel uh, first uh, talked about them. And then depression. Depression has certainly has not gone away. So just if we look at those particular elements that were the mass neurotic triad that were um, articulated back in the days when Viktor Frankl first uh, wrote about them, uh, those things have been exacerbated over these uh, these last several decades to the point where, again, these are societal ills. And so to say that, that we can only treat 
aggression, addiction, and depression with drugs is is, a, is an illusion. It's a fallacy, you know, and it's it's really not the kind of thinking that we want to uh, to espouse and, and share with people. We want to help build people's capacity to address examples like the mass neurotic triad using a, a more humanistic approach rather than one that just assumes that we can uh, reduce human beings into their component parts and do surgery you know we can do i used to work on the mental health self mental health system years ago where we still used to do lobotomies um i mean do we want to do that do we want to implant uh, uh, electrodes in people's brains and do we want to uh, just fill them up with drugs all the time i mean is that really solving and resolving societal ills? i don't think it is and i think that most people listening would agree with that and so the idea is that where are some of the bigger uh issues how can we how can we resolve them how can we get to the core and the core is the core of meaning people need to know that their life matters that their work matters that what that their relationships matter uh and that people care about them and this is again this is not just uh touchy-feely stuff this is this is a humanistic approach which we even learned was uh, an important driver for innovation in business and in, in governments Mm-hmm. As, you, yeah. as you can tell, you, oh, sorry for Elise, you have to interrupt you once in a while because <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recovering academic in a, in a way. And so the idea is that I could, I could this is basically a, a 16-week course that I could share with you right now. I so, know. Uh, you're gonna, see, you know, so you're going to have to interrupt me. Okay, I'm hanging on every word. Okay. Um, but you're right. I've got so many questions i got to get out of you before we, we get off the air because I want to share this with the listeners. Um, let's do this really quick. First, I'm going to say that what I heard in that was really catalyzing and developing human agency for people to be able to really create for themselves the lives that are meaningful and not rely on things like surgery, drugs, and lobotomies, if you will, to handle their problems. So yeah. completely with you on that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's and that's only that's only part of the issue. I mean, when you right, talk about the right. crisis, the crisis is looming ahead. That, for example, is going to be affected by the the, the so-called developments in technology. Mm-hmm. So, as we move into AI and some and robotics and so forth, what are we talking about? In the case of working on purpose, to what extent are we in fact going to replace human beings with machines with AI? And what is that? What are the implications of that on society and on human beings? These are the kinds of things that uh, Elaine and I are trying to address uh, in the work that we do through the Global Meaning Institute. Well, I would love to be part of that in any way because I'm 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 dedicated to that as well. In fact, I'm going to have a conversation on here with somebody else about how we can help catalyze human beings to better handle themselves and keep themselves yeah. in pace on pace with AI and artificial intelligence. I personally don't want to work in a world where I don't have a job because I can't keep up with artificial intelligence and robotics, etc. So I think we need to be much more thoughtful about the decisions we make as leaders as how we employ those technologies. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about something that I know a lot of uh, our, our listeners can really relate to here. And let's just do it briefly if, if we can, because I want to get to a quick break. But that's engagement. So what we're talking about here, this absence of meaning or lack of meaning, translates in many ways to the low engagement we see in organizations. And you and I both know th- those numbers. But for our listeners, according to Gallup, only 30% of the U.S. is fully engaged in their work. 52% are disengaged and 18% are actively disengaged. So we can start to really talk about how this becomes a, a, an issue to, to address. But first, you say in your book, and I completely agree, that um, the statement that business and engagement surveys are focused on the wrong areas entirely is so important. Can you say just a little bit about that, and then we'll take a quick break? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, a number of years ago, there was a book that came out that I'm sure you're familiar with called The Power of Full Engagement. Mm-hmm. And I would 
changed that title. I actually have done that in doing some keynote addresses in the past where I've changed the title from the power of full engagement to the power of meaningful engagement. Mm-hmm. Because, because we can have engagement by having dictators. I mean, we, if you're in North Korea, uh, you're going to be engaged because if you're not engaged in doing whatever you're supposed to be doing in that society, that particular culture and society, you know, you may find out that, uh, you know, you're going to be imprisoned or whatever. So the idea of just engaging, you can have an authoritarian uh, CEO or boss and uh, say, look, you know, you, you're fired if you don't uh, do these things. That type of engagement is not the kind of engagement we're talking about. We want it to be meaning-centric. And so the idea behind engagement with a, with a meaning focus is really helping. Uh, this is not just the responsibility of leaders and managers, but it's also the individual workers, whoever that worker may be, respond, personal responsibility is to find the deeper meaning in their work, why they're doing their, their, the, the deeper meaning in the relationships they have with their coworkers, with their customers, with their clients, with their students, with their patients, uh, with their supervisors. So it's it's not just because many of the, the, the engagement research that we've been reviewing really kind of put the blame a lot on leaders. And they kind of ignore the fact that it's a personal and collective responsibility to find the kind of meaning that we're talking about. You just can't pass the buck over to somebody else and say, Elise, you know, help me find meaning, help me become engaged. Uh, there's only so so much you can do. I have to do things as well. I have to meet you part of the way. And so this is a, a major issue for us is how do we then take some of the root causes of disengagement and, and really look at how then can we convert that and reduce anxiety, reduce some of those questions like aggression in the workplace, like addiction, uh, you know, depression and so forth, just like we talked about on a societal level. How do we do that in such a way that people are engaged? There are many people that come to work, and I and I, we, we know this, we've observed this, where, I mean, literally, I've walked into many companies where um, it's like a scene from the six, the movie The Sixth Sense, I see dead people. Uh, I know, well, they're the, everywhere, yes, I yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, and so the idea is, how do we change that? And, and why is it that there are some organizations, some companies, some in working environments, where people are really, come, they, they come alive, and you can see that they're proud of what they do. They're proud. I mean, even if their their budgets are cut or, or the, the the competition is is much more strenuous than say they'd like, they still you still come into that place and they want. And this is which we'll get into why the Opal Way became an important ingredient in our meaning work is that they really focus on hospitality, they focus on customer relations, they focus on building teams, they create a team spirit that is uh, that's almost like, you know, team spirits in a in an NBA basketball team, you know, that uh, I happen to be near, near Toronto where we just won the NBA uh, championship, you know, where they, where they really can feel that energy. And this is a key part. This is a part of the metaphysical element of meaning is that meaning goes back, and I'll get into this maybe after the break, where meaning has a spiritual component and it's a metaphysical element that helps drive people. And you can see it. You can see whether people are enjoying their work, they're enjoying their life, are they passionate and enthusiastic about what, they, what they're doing. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their posture. Um, and do they take care of themselves? Do they care about each other? And I think yes. that's the kind of thing. So the engagement that we're talking about, it's almost like trying to define, you know, maybe concepts like pornography. You know, I don't, can't define it, but I'll know it when I see it type of thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, meaningful Alex, engagement on, is something. Just going, a sec. Go uh, hold on. we got to take a quick break here. Sure. I love everything you're saying. And, yes, the reason I wanted to have you in the show is because you are helping 
pull us into a new space that we need to go into desperately. So that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show. So first break here, I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Alex Patakos, who is the founder of Global Meaning Institute. He is also the co-author with Elaine Dundon of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, Victor Frankel's Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work. And also they are the, the, the authors of The Opa Way, Finding Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life and Work. Patakos and Dundon are also the co-creators of the discipline Meaningology, the study and practice of meaning in life, work, and society. He joins us today from Niagara on, on the Lake in Canada. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now... Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Alex Patakos, who is the modern-day Greek philosopher and founder of the Global Meaning Institute, a think tank dedicated to advancing the human quest for meaning in life, work, and society. He is co-author with Elaine Dundon of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, Victor Frankl's Pr- Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work, and also the two of them authored The Opa Way, Finding Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life and Work. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, so Dr. Patakos, I want, really want to make sure that we can get into this next segment, your, your meaningology discipline. But before we do that, because for many listeners who aren't in the space like you and I are, meaning can be squishy. And I think it's important that we talk about that you, the two of you, you and Elaine, have um, created three tests designed to gauge a respondent's current level of thinking and feeling regarding the state of their meaning in their life and their work, as well as within the, within the organization. I mean, that is just so... It's just so crisp. Say more about those three tests and how they work. Okay, well, well let, let me first preface what I want to say about the test that we've developed by saying that, one, it is interesting that you use the word squishy, or as other people will talk about, the, you know, the, the soft side of work, you know, the soft side of life. Um, and we're really, as we think about it, with what we said before break, as technology begins to take uh, more and more over more and more of our lives and so forth, including the, the hard side of work, it's going to become even more important for us to focus on the soft side or the human side. And so this has really been our goal. And meaning has been kind of the, the foundation of humanizing the workplace for us, humanizing um, the way we relate to each other as human beings overall, uh, which is unfortunately something that we have to do. But you know, we seem to be getting away from a lot of those dimensions of what makes us really human. And then we've also been kind of focusing on trying to figure out how to uh, not just humanize the workplace and work, but also in a way spiritualize it by elevating human spirit in the workplace. And so that's been, those are kind of drivers of, you know, that, that really, that we come at it, mainly because of our own search for meaning uh, based on our own zigzag paths that Elaine and I have had. So what we've done is that um, because we, we really have three 
uh, it's kind of a, almost a three-pronged approach, three uh, legs to our stool, if you will, that became meteorology. One of them, the the earliest one that started all this was what I mentioned before that we had both had an interest in uh, innovation, and how do you manage, how do you cultivate innovation in a way that not just an organizational level, but how do we innovate our lives? You know, when you're stuck in a job, when you're stuck in a relationship, you know, people sometimes don't realize that they actually are in the driver's seat and they can innovate their way to a new to a solution, a creative solution. The second one is our passion for Viktor Frankl's wisdom, uh, his system of local therapy and existential analysis. And then the third uh, leg of our stool is really the existential uh, and ancient Greek philosophy that drove um, really the human condition. And so our research and our writing, our articles and so forth, we both write for, for example, Psychology Today, um, is really built on those three pillars, I guess, or stools of the of the of the of the um, legs of the stool. And from that, we don't want to we didn't really want to develop tests per se, because even though we're both uh, uh, behavioral scientists, uh, we're, we're really more philosophers in terms of creating a philosophy of life, a philosophy of work that we felt would be much more beneficial to human beings. But because particularly Americans and Canadians, North Americans and Northern Europeans are really big on scorecards and they want to know where they are. Um, the idea of developing an assessment tool became something that we got interested in, not because it, it, it embellishes the humanizing of the work that we do, but because it was a, a way to get people interested in it so that then we can engage in authentic dialogue and then talk about the deeper meaning, quote unquote, behind any assessment results that we might find. And so the idea was is that how do we create these tools? Where do they come from? And they really come from a formula that we developed coming out of our uh, years of experience working around the Greek philosophy, the Greek mythology and culture work that, that became and was written up in the book, The Oprah Way. And we, we looked at those uh, elements that came out of uh, that work. We looked at that in contrast and in comp- comparison to Viktor Frankl's wisdom, because we are also... Uh, very well versed in understanding his existential philosophy uh, around his system of local therapy. Uh, And we tied those two together. We we looked to integrate those. And in effect, the formula that became the assessment tools became not only a, a, a way to distill our work but it was also a way to simplify uh, in, in some respects without marginalizing Dr. Frankel's work because part of my mission in life is not only to advance Dr. Frankel's his life and legacy, but it was also to engage in a way that I can help bring it to the, the mainstream audience uh, in a different way. All right, I didn't want to bring it in as psychotherapy, as mm-hmm. something, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when you're going into the workplace, and the, fir- the first thing that I did, people just say, well, I don't need therapy. What are you you here for? Well, we're trying to help elevate (laughs) meaning in an organization. And as even Dr. Franco would say, the question about meaning, the human questions about meaning are really not symptoms of illness. They're really what makes us human. I mean, that's what distinguishes us from other living entities, that we can actually ask questions, existential questions about our own state of being. Why are we here? Where do we want to be? Those kinds of things. You know, what's our potential and how do we realize our potential? And so those are the kinds of questions that became health-oriented. As a matter of fact, logo therapy 
can be looked at not just as a as a therapeutic intervention, but it really is a health intervention. It's something. It's not just therapy through meaning. It's health through meaning. And so we really want to see this as how do you build healthy organizations? How do you build healthy communities, healthy societies, healthy families, healthy neighborhoods, etc. And so we went back to Greece. And again, I'm giving you really a, a, a much more than a 25 word. Uh, synopsis here, and we found that there were three core elements that drove the Greek culture in, in the work that we did there. And we did this starting pre-crisis. This is before the global economic crisis. This is before the refugee crisis, and then we followed it through. And we found that the three things that seemed to drive the Greek uh, the Greek uh, people's ability to deal with the stresses that they were facing as they entered into the crisis. Uh, was one, that they had a major authentic connection with each other uh, and a major connection with uh, their local traditional village life. They had connections in ways where they had they honored each other. Uh, honor is a big, 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 big factor. Uh, and, and they had a you know, tremendous amount of uh, ability to connect in ways that uh, Elaine and I said, well, geez, I wish we could do that in North America because many of the things that happened in North America didn't relate in the same way. We said, if we could take bottle that ingredient and bring it back to North America in some way, we could help reduce stress, we could help people relate to each other in much more peaceful, healthy ways. So uh, connecting, which became O and OPA, it's connect, connecting meaningfully with others, others became the O. And then we, the second element was that they were engaged with, with a deeper purpose. The purpose, you know, uh, you know, we all heard this saying that where there's a will, there's a way. Well, to paraphrase Dr. Frankel, we believe that where there's a purpose, there's a will. And so the idea here is that, that we wanted to help people articulate what their purpose is, which is a large part of what you're doing uh, in this show and your work. And so P became a core element of our, our formula for meaning, if you will. And then the third one, which is also very closely related to local therapy and Dr. Frankel's work, is the fact that the Greeks are very, very open and transparent and authentic about expressing themselves about their attitude in life and this is kind of this is where the word if you take opna as, a, as an acronym here but that's you put it together it's a word in a common greek word it's oppa all right yeah. and so it, you can't say oppa without you know elevating your spirit without you know and so the idea behind a lot many of the greeks unlike some of the, the folks say in other some other cultures that are much more closed and armored in terms of how they express themselves the greeks embraced life the good times the bad times the joy joys and the sorrows and so forth with an attitude that was very resilient and very and also very appreciative so we took the attitude element we took the purpose element we took the others element and those three comprise the model, the par- the new paradigm for meaning that we articulated in the spouse in the open way. And then that model then was further enhanced. And we that's when we started to go into the empirical base of developing assessment tools uh, that allowed us to do, quote unquote, training uh, capacity building around the meaning questions that people would have either individually on a personal level or uh, in, in, a, in an organizational group setting or you know in, in any type of group uh, and that became kind of the foundation for doing that but I want to make it clear that the assessment tools in and of themselves are no good if you don't engage people on a humanistic level where they absolutely. actually you know what I mean yeah. and so absolutely so give, so give somebody a score 
I mean, that's not enough. We got to no. know is okay. Right, let's, right, right. let's 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 do a deep dive. Let's find out. Are you weaker on purpose? Let's talk about that. And then, you know, as you know from reading the books, we have a lot of different things, a lot of path. We call them pathways uh, to to understand practices to understand how do you how do you do a deep dive in purpose? How do you do a deep dive in, in your connections and with others? And how do you do a deep dive in terms of uh, improving your attitude? All three of those components together comprise our formula for meeting. So when you look at that, and I, you know, and again. I'm not trying in any way to minimize the value of working on purpose, your program. But purpose is only part of the formula of meaning. It is not meaning. Purpose and meaning are not the same. And so it's important because there are many people who never have. They either die prematurely. They, you know, they could die some. They could die uh, prematurely. They can die, uh, you know, before birth. They can die at a young age. They can die as a result of civil strife, war, disease. You name it. Their life still has meaning, even if they never were able to achieve a purpose per se that we would like to say is something that we'd all ideally like to be able to do. They never realize their full potential uh, in that in that sense. But at the same time, we firmly believe as Viktor Frankl did, that all life has meaning up to your very last breath. As a matter of fact, it could be way beyond our last breath because we have no idea what happens after that. And so the idea here is that meaning is the all-encompassing. It's almost like if you look at uh, a frozen lake, all right, uh, and if you look at a lake closely, there are little holes, and some of the holes all, right, all go down deep. Some of them only go to you know, hit the surface really lightly. All of us are on a path Ultimately, our path is to get down to the body of water that basically connects us all, which is under the ice. All right. And so each of us, some of us are, are, are more evolved than others in terms of we're more conscious of what we're doing. Some people have to repeat lessons over and over and over again until they get the insight. But the idea here is these are the things we're trying to do. We're trying to use our assessment tools. Our, we have workbooks. We have, we have a, a coaching program. We have uh, you know, a journal that people can maintain uh, so that they can keep track of to what extent are they navigating their life in a way that they're improving their O, their connections with others, their P, their engagement with purpose, and their A, their ability to embrace life with attitude. Those are the things that, in a nutshell, represent awesome. meteorology. Yeah, beautifully done, Alex. I knew that we were being very aggressive in the questions here because I wanted to give as much as of you and Elaine as I could. So hold that thought. We're going to grab our last break because after the break, okay. I want to talk about how we can apply this inside organizations and in leadership. That's the next piece. Okay. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Dr. Alex Patakos, who is the founder of the Global Meaning Institute. He is a co-author with Elaine Dundon of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, Victor Frankl's Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work, and also they authored The OPA Way, Finding Joy and meaning in everyday life and work. They are the co-creators of the discipline Meaningology, the study and practice of meaning in life, work, and society. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. 
This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Alex Patakos, who is a modern-day Greek philosopher and founder of the Global Meaning Institute, which is a think tank dedicated to advancing the human quest for meaning in life, work, and society. He is co-author with Elaine Dundon of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, Victor Frankl's Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work, and also they co-authored together The OPA Way, Finding Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life and Work. Patakos and Dundon are the co-creators of the discipline of meaningology, the study and practice of meaning in life, work, and society. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this last segment, I wanted to give our listeners, Alex, the the chance to really start to apply this stuff inside organizations. Before the break, you talked a little bit about how they could apply it individually, which is great. So, And you also mentioned in in an earlier segment the importance of um, um, that, that a meaning culture, within a meaning culture, all employees must realize that they are an integral part of and responsible for creating the meaning-centered culture that they're part of. And I completely endorse that. I love that that sort of adds some human agency. And it also removes the idea that it's all about, it's all on the leaders and the organizations to create that. So would you just say a few more words about the individual piece of this? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's, it's very important for everybody to appreciate that culture is something that is co-created. You know, we all ultimately, how we practice uh, uh, our daily lives, whether it's uh, at home or whether it's at work, uh, ultimately is a contribution one way or the other to whatever culture that we're trying to ideally uh, work within or live within. And so if we are uh, not nice to our neighbors, I mean, that changes our neighborhood culture. Uh, if we are disrespectful at work, uh, even if we're not, you know, the CEO or the senior manager, uh, that has an impact on the quote unquote culture. Culture, the, the, one, of the, one of the many definitions of culture is that it's, it really revolves around shared learned uh, behavior, knowledge, behavior, and attitudes. So to the extent that we can share and, ha- and develop a common understanding of the practices, uh, the knowledge that we'd like to have, say, in the workplace, then that's at least a, a good starting point. Uh, and that's where we really need to get into some form of authentic dialogue in order to engage people in a meaningful way so that they can actually feel that they're part of the culture. Um, and so when you look at more some of the recent leaders who are probably well-known in the business world, I mean, for example, there was a, not too long ago a Forbes article written by Jack Welch, the uh, uh, former uh, CEO of uh, GE, and he he basically uh, put out uh, a call to uh, have that uh, one of the most important core competencies of a, of a leader is really to be the chief meaning officer, uh, and that their role is to help people other people that they work with find meaning in their work. Um, that's a leadership uh, challenge. There have been others. I mean, there was uh, we 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 wrote about. Uh, uh, a person who was the former former uh, uh, head of the uh, Medicaid Medicare program in the United States, who felt that it wasn't enough just to do report cards and track performance, et cetera, et cetera, that the real magic of leadership was in helping people find meaning. So we're starting to see in a, in a growing awareness that the meaning question, uh, particularly as we look at Uh, the changes that are happening in the workplace, the changes that are happening in technology, that people need to find something other than, uh, you know, extrinsic motivators. It's not enough to get more money. It's not enough because we're we're going to start 
seeing so many changes just on the technological front that that could uh, do damage to the cultures. So the cultures have to become more humanistic. They have to focus on understanding what are the key drivers that will allow people to get along, to be healthy, uh, to be resilient, to stay engaged, uh, even to, to be innovative. And we, our belief is, and this is the belief that goes all the way back to the writings, uh, to, the, to the ancient Greek philosopher's writings, is, uh, and Viktor Frankl as well, is that meaning is that primary uh, starting, that starting place for all this to happen. And there's where the OPA way and the OPA formula, which now comprises the foundation of meaningology, comes into play. Mm-hmm. So let me just say it for the benefit yeah. of our listeners who haven't read the two books like I have. Um, right. I want to really present something for our listeners as a, as a possibility for you. So those of you who are currently leaders or who are aspiring to be leaders, imagine that you call yourself the chief meaning officer. And your job is the, as the leader, your number one job is to champion meaning in the organization, which will drive engagement and resilience, health and well-being, and performance and innovation to the highest levels. Imagine having that job and walking in. So just wanted for our our listeners who haven't read the, both of these books just right. to see that crispness of possibility for themselves. Yeah. And so to finish, yeah, but, but, oh, yeah. go ahead, Alex. You, I was going to yeah, have yeah, you talk yeah. about the OPA way and how to kind of maybe develop that in organizations. Right. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me give it just a few, few examples just to kind of put it into context. Yeah. Again, this, this is not just for Greeks, even though the, you know, the foundation <laughs> of this came out of a Greek experience. I happen to be, as you can tell from my last name, I'm of Greek heritage, a very proud uh, uh, Greek American. So, you know, this is not something, though, that is only for Greeks. This is, uh, you know, if, if anybody who's listening is, is saw the, uh, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the reason we all resonated with it is because it was very universal in its application. We could all relate in some way mm-hmm. to that family. Well, this is the same thing what we'd like to say about the open way and, and meaningology. This is something that these are universal values. These are things that go, and we, and we practice this in, in many different cultures. So we know that this works not just uh, in uh, in Western society uh, in, in North America, but it's, it's, it's been applicable all around the world. So let's just take others, for example. When we talk about others, we're talking about connecting authentically, which is the way of connecting meaningfully with others. So think about it in the work context. All right, one of our practices in the OPA way is, for example, um, connect with the village. Okay, the reason it comes to the village is because we were talking about how do people in traditional Greek villages relate to each other? What are the, what are the characteristics of a true village? Think about it for a second. How many of us in our life have heard the concept, we live in a global village? Or how many of us heard this people say, oh, it takes, a, it takes a village to raise a child? But we don't treat each other as villagers. And so part of the challenge of being a a person either in an organization as an employee, as an associate, or whether you're the leader, is that to what extent is your organization, your workplace, like a village? And if it's not, what can you do to help contribute to making it more so? I mean, just being able to say, you know, good morning to people, just being able to listen to them uh, in a way that is authentically active listening as opposed to just passing by uh, and not really caring what's bothering them, who they are. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, we probably all have heard of the uh, the concept managing by wandering around, MBWA, <laughs> right? Yes. Okay, and, uh, and I've done enough uh, uh, keynote speeches where I've actually on stage have kind of uh, walked across the stage pointing out to members of the audience and saying, here's a good example of managing by wandering around in a typical organization. Keep up the good work, whatever it is, whoever you are. It's basically showing that the manager, the leader, you know, is saying, okay, I want you to work hard for me, but I really have no idea who you are. I don't know. You've been here for 25 years and, you, you, and you're in the cubicle just down the hall and I have no idea who you are. I mean, that is not going to create a village. 
right? And so the idea is that what can we do to create connections between people through the village? What can we do the same thing? There's another practice we have in the under O in the Opa way on hospitality. The Greeks are very well known for their hospitality and being caring for people. Well, many people in our society in Western, Northwestern, uh, in North America, uh, are really focused more on the transactions that take place in an organization. Uh, you go to a restaurant, you know, for example, you go to the store, I mean, you know, can I help you? you know, and you get the bill right away. Or they're saying, they, you know, they, they don't really treat you like you're, you're really, they really care, you know, that you're there or not. Well, part of the experience of hospitality working and living in Greece is the fact that they do care. They don't, you know, they, they want you to, you could have one cup of coffee and stay there for four hours. You know, they're, it's less about the money, it's, it's about the connection. And what, what happens with that, it creates a sense of loyalty and brand loyalty that wants you to come back. And I remember in Chicago, uh, I used to go to a Greek restaurant, just as an example. Again, it doesn't have to be a Greek restaurant, it could be anything. But I remember this Greek restaurant on a, on the, by the front door, it had a sign it's facing outside that said, welcome home. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, the idea is, is that it's, it's the hospitality can be applied in hospitals. The thing about this, it comes from the same Greek word, roots, a hospital. Do we really treat Patients and coworkers, hospitals in some cases are some of the sickest organizations on the planet, um, and so that healthy organizations has to be uh, focused in in the health sector as well. All right, to make sure that in fact uh, people aren't just treated like they're parts of a machine. And so the idea behind hospitality is another way. Of, you know, to what extent are you treating people so that it's not like you know the stereotypical we laugh about government uh, people going in to get a license at a you know the motor vehicles bureau. Uh, you know, that's not the kind of hospitality, that's not the kind of connection that we're talking about in OPA. And so that's something that all of us can do, not just leaders. I mean, the way you treat, I mean, it's amazing. If you smile at somebody and treat them in a positive way, it's amazing what kind of response you get. If you come in there with a bad attitude, with your head down, it's amazing what kind of response you get, right? So the idea here is that you are in control of what, you know, again, it's kind of like, be the change you want to see in the world, be the change you want to see in your workplace. And that's part of what we're trying to do here and see what impact it has. But but that's, oh, and obviously leaders have responsibility as well, but it's not just the leaders. I don't want to put all the blame and all the responsibility on them. Agreed. Uh, anyway, so, and then we've got the same, how much time do I have? Are you got, <laughs> you're so good, Alex. <laughs> I love this. I know I'm getting as much as I can out of you. you got really like probably two minutes, three, three minutes to finish this part and then we'll have to conclude and I'll give you the, la- the okay. last word there. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's the same thing in terms of purpose. I mean, pur- purpose is an important element for all of us because purpose, one, of our, one of our practices under purpose has to do with know thyself. And know thyself is, 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 is actually manifests itself in different ways. But one of them is to what extent are people in your workplace wearing masks? Now, do you wear a mask when you go to work and then your real self is shown when you're out of work? Well, if that's the case, then in a lot of ways, you know, you're not being authentic and you're not going to really create the kind of engagement that we talked about earlier. So the idea behind know thyself is, you know, one, know your own values, your core values, your core essence, explore it. It's ongoing. I mean, the search for meaning, you know, is is something that we all ideally would like to see uh, manifest in our lives. And to what extent are we spending time doing uh, exercises? You know, today we talk about mindfulness, but that's not enough. It's not enough just to be mindful. It's not enough just to empty your mind. It's also to understand the deeper core, that, that core essence, that true nature that will help drive you. And uh, again, to use a, a, an English word that has a Greek derivative, the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words and actually means manifesting the God or the spirit within. So in many respects, if people aren't enthusiastic at work, 
I mean, they're basically not manifesting their spirit. And to what extent we have a responsibility. I mean, it's part of why, as you can tell a little bit, I'm pretty enthusiastic about what we're doing. But to <laughs> us, this, this, this is a ministry of meaning. This is a ministry. All right, this is not just, I mean, this is not just a joke. I mean, you know, I mean, my goal in life is to help people find that deeper meaning and help them elevate their spirit. And then that, that manifests in attitude, the A. You know, to what extent are embracing the fullness of life, which includes, you know, the, the down times. You know, this is not about positive psychology where the, the earlier version of positive psychology, there is now a positive psychology 2.0 that's being floated out there in the in the, in the the world professionally. And I, I have some close friends and colleagues who are, who are leaders in that. But it's not just about the good times because your happiness, your search for happiness is fleeting. And, you know, there's meaning even in your low points in your life. As a matter of fact, in many respects, your most soulful, meaningful time or when you're out of balance, not when you're in balance, when you're not happy. Because those are the times you do deep soul searching. Those are the times when you find who your true friends are. You know, your true friends aren't there when you have a lot of money and everything's going great. Your true friends are the ones who show up when things are, you know, starting to go down the tubes. And so these are the kinds of things. And so to what extent can you then use your connecting with your friends, that connecting meaningfully with others in order to embrace life the fullness of life, and raise your attitude, to be appreciative with an attitude, to be resilient attitude. Those are the kinds. So the combination, the interdependency of OPNA is what has become part of our uh, empirical data base. And so doing the assessment tools has given us some empirical evidence about you know, the O, the P, and the A, the combination, the interaction effects. Um, and similar to Viktor Frankl's work, I mean, attitude and what we wrote about in Prisoners of Our Thoughts, you know, attitude is, is, a, is a good starting place. I mean, if we've got a bad attitude, it's pretty damn hard to uh, connect with others and it's pretty hard to engage with deeper purpose. You got to believe, you got to you know, believe that, you know, your attitude is going to, in fact, help drive you uh, forward and upward. Beautiful way to finish, Dr. Alex Patakos. It has really been my privilege to have you on the show. This is a vitally important conversation to have, and I, like you, am committed to bringing humanity back to the workplace and making it a joyful place for everyone. So thank you for sharing your your scholarship, your heart, your soul, everything with us today. It's been a privilege. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Alex Patakos and the work he and Elaine Dundon do at the Global Meaning Institute, visit globalmeaninginstitute.com. Again, globalmeaninginstitute.com. Last week, if you missed the, the live show, you can always catch it via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Wei Li Shao of Omada Health. We talked about the insistent and irresistible nudge he felt for years to step outside his comfort zone, endure a, a severe health scare, and take the leap to pursue what he calls his 2.0, a life and career built on meaning and purpose. Very arresting and inspiring story. Next week, we'll be talking with Karen Millsap. She is a resilience coach and founder of the Grow Flow community. She has an incredibly remarkable story of overwhelming pain, loss, and defeat that put her on her path to purpose. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.